Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Eliza Griswold won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for her book, Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Her 2011 book, The Tenth Parallel, Dispatches from the Fault Line Between Christianity and Islam, won the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize. In addition to her journalism, she has published two volumes of poetry. She is currently a distinguished writer-in-residence at New York University. Hi, Eliza. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. One of the things I noticed in your both your books is they're both prefaced by maps. You seem to be very interested in maps. The title of your first book or your first nonfiction book, The Tenth Parallel, is obviously reference to a map. And I noticed also in Amity and Prosperity, you start off with four maps. You're, you're not only a, a map of Pennsylvania, not only a map of Western Pennsylvania, not only a map of the particular towns that you write about, but a map of the shale sort of configuration, the Marsalis shale, the Devonian shale there. The first 10 or 20 pages of your book, you might be reading John McPhee in some ways. What what were some of the things that uh, struck you about this place when you first started visiting it so many years ago? So... What I didn't understand about this place when I first went there in 2011 was that this is where Appalachia begins. And when I first went to Amity and Prosperity, I actually got there by way of West Virginia. So I first heard Stacey Haney, the single mom and the nurse who tells the story in this book. I first met her at the airport in Morgantown, West Virginia in March of 2011 when she spoke for the first time. And when I went down there, I actually was taken by a biologist who works with the Army Corps of Engineers. And she pointed out to me as we drove how the landscape had flatlined and how resource extraction, that was mountaintop removal. But there was a more than a century of coal mining and, you know, gas extraction and different forms of extraction that had happened from this very place. And you can see it. That history is etched on the land. So that's the kind of place when I see somewhere like that, whether it's northern Nigeria or southwestern Pennsylvania, that I find really, really central to telling layers of history, uh, but also to teaching us about ourselves and our own patterns of consumption. I gather that that part of the world was early on, they discovered some oil there in western Pennsylvania. Then it was sort of soft coal, bituminous coal, then steel. So. It is the first place in America where oil was discovered, you know, and the legacy of of oil, basically the first oil boom, is written in the names of towns, you know, Hot Cinder, different boom town names that, that have survived, which is crazy, right? Because we don't associate Pennsylvania with resources in the way that it really, really is, is true. And before even we were looking at fossil fuels, we were looking at timber, right? So a lot of the beginning of the conservation movement in America came directly out of the response to clear-cutting vast swaths of Pennsylvania. So both 
extraction and the American response to extraction really begin in Pennsylvania. Um, And yes, the history, if we look at timber, then we move on to oil and an early gas boom, you know, shallow gas. And lots of people still have gas wells on their farms. And then, yeah, mining of mining of coal and especially then most recently a kind of industrial coal mining called longwall mining. And staying out of the weeds but giving sort of a broad sense of what it is, it's not what we think of. It's not what I thought of in terms of like people underground with a pick. That's room and pillar mining. It's it's taking out an entire coal seam. And when you do that, by definition, whatever is atop it is going to sink into the ground a little bit. And what happens as a result of longwall mining is that farms lose their water almost by definition. And what happens then, of course, is the farm needs to be abandoned. And some people love that. They call it the longwall lottery. They've been looking to get off this land for generations. Finally, the coal company is going to pay them for it. And some people don't. Part of the reason that people who live in Amity were willing to and eager to sign these gas leases is that people who live in prosperity had lost their water. And so the people living in Amity thought, I don't know who these gas people are, but they can't be worse than the coal guys, and we'd like to keep those coal guys out. So for me, learning about this story, so much of what had been written about fracking was written out of a you know, 10-year lens. And the truth is there's no understanding how this dynamic plays out in southwestern in Pennsylvania without a century-long lens. Water is almost a, a minor character in this, uh, in the sense, that, as you say, that in prosperity, they lost their water because of the kind of mining being done there. Uh, one of the principal concerns of your main character, Stacy, is uh, her concern for water because she grew up in a situation where she had to have water shipped in, and that was a great shame for her. That there was a sense of real loss, a sense that she didn't have any stature. Now that she had water, she was damned if she was going to lose it. She even goes to the great lengths to get a water clause written into the contract she makes, and that becomes a big dynamic later on in the in the book. It seems like all the elements are really there, you know, in that part of the world that you see this kind of scarcity that climate change and other things have brought to whether it's the tenth parallel or or this particular part of southwestern Pennsylvania? A hundred percent. I mean, when we think of water scarcity or we think of poverty in the U.S. or worldwide, we think about droughts. And and we don't usually think about infrastructure, that terribly unsexy word, which I've spent years trying to spin in one way or the other, because that's what drew me first to this area was crumbling bridges. I wanted to write about American infrastructure and our kind of collective poverty. But Infrastructure plays out around water in this in Appalachia in general in profound ways, which is they have plenty of water. They just can't afford access to it because they can't afford to dig the wells. There's often no public water. And some people don't want – they call it city water. Uh, some people don't want city water. But they they then have to do something called hauling water, which this is one of those things where often in a classroom these days, students – you know, have a fear about reporting stories that aren't their own. You know, what? It, how can I tell somebody else's story? And the truth is, reporting requires crossing lines of difference. And one of the reasons that that is important is what people who live in a place are used to. Sometimes it takes an outsider to see what's extraordinary. Hauling water is a perfect example. I mean, it, I had been working in this area for a couple of years before I understood that to get drinking water, they loaded what's called a water buffalo, a big water tank on the back of a, you know, a truck and drove for 10 miles to a place called Rough Creek to fill up on water because they could 
couldn't drink the water in their own houses. And they filled a huge cement cistern outside their house, concrete. That was a fact-checking question. It's concrete. It's not cement. <laughs> but that was absolutely ordinary to Stacy and her family. And the fact that I found it so extraordinary, they found very funny. But in fact, it's the key to people cannot afford adequate drinking water infrastructure. And that's not just about water abundance or quality. It's about the pipes themselves. And certainly when it comes to Flint, we, we are seeing what the true human cost of our lack of investment in our infrastructure is. I like that point you make about how it takes outsiders to look at things, that, or at least that reporting often requires a kind of crossing borders, crossing from one identity to the other, uh, the assumption that you might be able to, the, if not understand thoroughly, at least grasp the basics of someone else's experience as being an important aspect of reporting. I feel especially th at this time it's important to say that because I think that that idea, I see in my classroom that the students are, are concerned about taking that on and that one of the criticisms they commonly level at one another is, well, they're not from there. And it's like, well, of course they're not from there. They would never have seen that story. So that's one reason I talk about that is because I feel like that's a really basic, that's an essential principle of journalism that at our times um, can be under threat. It doesn't need to be. How did you navigate that? You come from Philadelphia, which is about 300 miles from there. You now live in New York. How did you navigate the the differences between the kind of childhood and, and young adulthood you've had and the kind of lives they've lived? Well, I mean, it, it was tough. I mean, it was tougher than I thought. For example, there's a wonderful farmer in the book who unfortunately has passed away. Uh, his name is Bill Hartley, and he ran a barber salon on top of his great-grandmother's farm, which had been undermined. It had, it had lost its water. She, he, she, he'd bought it back from the coal company. Bill Hartley turned to me early on and said, where are you from? And I knew New York City was a bad answer. I thought Philadelphia might be a better one because fellow daughter of the Commonwealth. And as soon as I said, well, I'm from New York, but I was born in Philadelphia, he said, well, that's two strikes against you. So what I really learned is part of the history of amnity in this place and this overblown or not overblown, but oversimplified rural versus urban divide and how it is that rural Americans from Appalachia have paid for urban Americans' energy appetite for more than a century, and that has led to a pattern of disenfranchisement. You know, and it's not just it's not just flicking on our lights and not thinking about it. It's where does our meat come from? You know, all of these processes that are dirty that we outsource to other places and then look askance at the very people who make their livelihoods doing them while we consume the benefits. We need to understand that better, especially before 2020, because this is a dynamic playing out acutely. The the sense of place is so clear throughout the book. Was this a kind of place that you found beautiful, found attractive? Is it a kind of place that you liked or was it sort of industrial detritus that you were sort of reporting the story because of the importance of it, but wouldn't have wanted to be there were you not doing that? You know, I like places that tell stories by looking at them. And some of my favorite places in the world aren't necessarily aesthetically pleasing, but they're very, they're very evocative. And this is one of those places. It's as if the earth has been just crumpled. I mean, the, the, 
the hills and the challenges between the, the hillside and the hollows and what that actually looks like, they're pretty dramatic. It's not just like sleepy Midwestern farmland. You know, this is dark cavernous. Where is the river? It's at the bottom of that hill. And you can see, you can see all kinds of things. You can see a social economy. You can see the haves and have nots. The his, who lives in the trailer by the by the side of the stream at the bottom of the hollow is likely to get screwed when the water goes bad. So those layers of existence are more interesting to me than kind of taking solace from the physical beauty. So you started reporting this around 2011 or so? March 2011. March 2011. So, you know, Obama's running for a second term and, you know, the uh, reconciliation of mankind in America is going to go on forever. And you're there, down there writing about resources and infrastructure and things like that. And you see as things unwind over the next four, five, six, eight years, the way that the forces sort of align differently. In a place like Pennsylvania in particular, it's interesting that it is as evenly matched as Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. It's not a red state. It's not a blue state, historically a blue state because of the labor. Right. But what were the kind of changes that you saw going on there as you reported longitudinally over time? Uh, so I saw a growing dis disillusionment with the federal government, although that that's like a blip on a longer history of the exact same sentiment. But one of the things that's really important to understand is that our horrific energy policy didn't simply begin with Trump. This all happened on Obama's watch. And the gutting of public programs, uh, the lack of adequate regulation, the rah-rah boosterism around America's energy boom, that's a legacy of Obama, you know? And I often think that that, like the war in Syria, these are things that Obama, that are going to complicate the history of this heroic president. So over that period of time, I watched for those people who did not support fracking, right, who felt that they were being screwed by the industry because none of the – no one I know in Amity or Prosperity uh, opposes fracking for ideological reasons. It's because their practical experience has showed them that this is just one more big business that's going to screw them. So – as that became increasingly apparent to some of the people in the book, of course, others still support fracking to this day. As that became increasingly apparent, those people turned more and more against the federal government and were disappointed and enraged at Obama. And they hadn't been fans of Obama before. And there also, it was amazing how toothless the federal government was, how little uh, real power these regulators had. People sort of go out there. They were so undermanned to begin with mm -hmm. uh, that there really was this uh, sense that the people whose lives are being upended by these uh, fracking and other things really had nowhere to turn other than the company that was doing the fracking. No, that's right. The companies control everything. They control the jobs. They control the access to the sites. They control the knowledge of what chemicals are being used. So regulators in this industry and in many are dependent on the, the companies themselves to, to tell them what they're using to regulate themselves, which in this case they did not adequately do. And this company had made very public claims, claims that have uh, relevance to the SEC about the fact that it was the first to disclose all the chemicals it used in the fracking process. And it turns out it's not that they weren't disclosing them. They didn't even know. And why didn't they know? Because they 
turn to suppliers who for whom these were proprietary. These were trade secrets. So they couldn't know. And that's the kind of that's the kind of fact that becomes apparent after careful reporting and after many, many people, including John and Kendra Smith, the attorneys at the heart of this story, spend years drilling down on what's actually happening. In wake of the uh, Trump election, Mm -hmm. there were uh, vast armies of reporters going down to Appalachia, loosely defined, to find out who are these people who did this to us, essentially. You had been there all along and had a very different kind of answer. What did you think of these, you know, a lot of these reporters who were going down there? Did they ever ask you for advice or? No, I mean, I don't think they knew I was there. And and. It's interesting. Like I heard a David Wallace Wells, a friend and stunning journalist, say the other day that it's not about one kind of story. And I thought, you know what? That I love that. Right? I was full of rage when CNN like shown up in my Hilton Garden Inn where I'd been eating the cookies for years. I was, but I was also sort of excited because this place that I had been in off the grid for years was suddenly relevant. I think. It's part of the problem that we've got going on and I fear is happening once again, which is reporting like this takes time and it's expensive. And if you really want to know what people think, you got to ask them over more than a 45-minute conversation, you know, where it's precast already. So, yeah, I think this is an ongoing challenge and I hope we get it a little more right because the costs of getting it wrong are pretty high. The the culture of that area is something you capture so beautifully, the – uh, I was doing some research and found that there was a point in the 18th century where uh, there was a possibility of a new state, Westylvania, mm-hmm. uh, being that that time the 14th state. There's this idea of what used the term hoopies, insider's name for hilljacks mm-hmm. there. I mean, how would you describe the culture of that place that that struck you as being really different and unique to that place? Mm. Well, I mean, one of the historical realities here, which I certainly didn't know before I began the book, and one of the histories of that enmity has to do with the histories of, of settlers to this to this area really dating back hundreds of years. I mean, we're talking way before the Revolutionary War. And Scots-Irish, early patterns of Scots-Irish and other European settlers coming, trying to get land on the East Coast. The Quaker elite, among other colonial officials, saying, sorry, head west, but we're not going to give you any of that land. You can squat on it, but don't tell us. And and you are going to be a bloody buffer. You're going to be fighting Native Americans for the right to squat there. And this really interesting history of land dispute and class You know, all of these issues we see playing out happened historically. And so... What was your question? Oh, just about the about the what was peculiar to the culture that that was. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, that's Appalachia, and then you have all the yeah, stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, no, not at all. And it, yeah, there was nothing stereotypical about these places. Partly because I don't have enough experience as a reporter in Appalachia to even know the the stereotypes. So. This is like I often called it the suburban edge of Appalachia. So Stacy and I reported so closely on the families that it was it was more about what they 
were doing and what they valued and like going to Cabela's and buying a new ATV and new expensive boots and real cheap camo and things that were very specific to them, uh, but also did reveal somewhat of a larger culture. But what they spent money on, you know, the farms that they, you know, hobby farming, a lot of it is for Stacy and her kids. She was so determined to give her kids a place in the middle class. And for her, that meant a farm because that's what she and her sister grew up wanting and not having as children. They wanted to show 4-H animals. You know, they wanted this life that is, yes, part of an idealized past. But for Stacy, it was part of this present. And that's what she worked so hard to provide for them. I don't know that that would be true elsewhere in Appalachia. And her, her goals were so modest. She wanted to fix her barn. Yeah. In the end, it was not about swimming pools and vacations to Europe. Not at all. It was about a $9,000, $9,000 barn, and she would get $8,000 toward it. And and what was that barn about? It wasn't any kind of status symbol. It was so that the goats weren't getting rained on. The the, the whole town fair becomes a very important sort of uh, character again in that place that the people come to for social reasons, for these kind of reasons of showing off their animals, mm-hmm. for class reasons. And also uh, it becomes a place that the corporation uses to sort of swoop down and try to pick people off and flatter them, buy their animals for lots of money, buy goodwill. But the the, the valence, the social valence of that association becomes so clear there how much it means to her. Yeah, I mean, these, these sim- animals water, a farm, being of the soil. These principles underlie Stacy's entire self schemata. And Stacy has chosen an identity and to be successful and relevant as a human being is to live up to those markers. And I think one of the things that happened for her in the course of the time that I spent with her, she went from imagining, she is very, very smart. She's extremely driven, organized, beloved, gorgeous, which I don't really write that much about because she's so pretty. I couldn't, I kept using these words. I was like, I can't say this anymore. We'll just let people imagine. She had all these, these gifts that allowed her to imagine that she would succeed in a way that her family, her parents in particular, weren't able to in the midst of the industrial collapse. She would get this place firmly in the middle class by sheer dint of effort. And I think what we saw and what maybe speaks to a larger story is that her individual American dream will was not enough. And she ended up that very, I'll sign this, I'll get the barn, I will be safely middle class. It all backfired on her. And I think that there is a real humility in that, a rage in what had been taken from her and her entire trajectory, but also humility and, oh my God, it isn't individual. It's not about individual will and rugged individualism. Um, so I think that was that was really, for her, the principal lesson of this experience. And that came across very clearly, your sense of her uh, as uh, struggling to be a member of the middle class and and associate yourself with some of these values became very clear how self-conscious or not self-conscious, but how aware she was of, for instance, one of the reasons she wanted to lease her land for fracking was for sort of patriotic reasons so we wouldn't be dependent on foreign oil and those kinds of things. That these were real concerns. Her father was a a veteran. Uh, um, Other people around her were as well. And so her her sense of trying to navigate through that world has a kind of material reality to it because you root it all in the land. 
that yeah. you are very conscious of both the part of the world she comes from, what that means, and also what the various accoutrements of that part of the world are that uh, show that you are either in the lower middle class, middle class, or, or wherever. You, were, you, you became very – I mean, one of the things Tom Wolfe says is that every reporter should be a reporter on status. And I, what I felt – was so so wonderful about this book was that I had a very acute sense of all the very finely sort of drawn differences in status between the different characters oh, without being hit over the head with them. Yeah, I mean, the thing about this book is that it was so hard. And I mean, that's true of every book. But this book, like, seriously, between the science and the complexity of the human relationships and the questions that couldn't be answered and the amount of time over years and the suffering of the people involved, the best I could do was get it on the page as accurately as possible. So so some of, like in terms of craft, you know, I have less answers in terms of craft questions or why I chose one thing or the other because I was simply trying so hard to get it right. It's a quiet story. It's a story of quiet horror. And I wasn't sure, as we've talked about in the past, how people would respond to that. I mean, people looking for a great, big, bad story about uh, faucets being set on fire, we're not going to find that here. This is this is a story about human lives and small tragedy. Um, and I think that's one reason why it's so gratifying to have people respond to it. And you've had you also had the, the challenge of having to deal with other people's presuppositions and stereotypes. Oh. I mean, anyone who's seen Deliverance is going to look at, at this part of the world in a certain way, and you have to combat that. Oh, totally. I mean, even, you know, Hillbilly Elegy, these guys hate that. Well, Stacey and her family don't know about Hillbilly Elegy, but if you talk to kind of the intelligentsia in, you know, Morgantown, West Virginia, or, or Charleston, West Virginia, other real intellectual capitals— People hate that book, right, because they see it as creating the story of rugged individualism uh, that is, a, is like an Ayn Randian fantasy. And that it also there's a really and this I, I am just still learning about this, but there's a really long history of labor resistance of, you know, minors. Like when we look at the UMWA, we look at why we have the work week we do, uh, there's a long history of hard socialist resistance in Appalachia. And I think that people are tired of being cast as Trump voters when, in fact, you know, I, as a Philadelphia, as a, as a I live in Philadelphia part time. And when people said to me in the course of writing this book, oh, it's southwestern Pennsylvania. Those are the people who brought us Trump. I would just say, actually, the people who live in the suburb next door aren't going to tell you, but they brought us Trump. So, you know, because of their use of energy or because of their class standing no, and voting for their No, because they voted for Trump. Yes. Right? And they were not, you know, they might live in their nice cul-de-sac and they're not maybe going to tell you when you knock on your door on their door and ask them who they voted for. But at the, I wasn't concerned about the rise of Trump because I didn't think that Appalachia had the numbers. I knew which way these guys were going, but I didn't think these communities were population dense enough. And and maybe they wouldn't have been if people who were so-called among the liberal elite didn't go to Trump as well. And so this population that we have now cast all the blame, they're responsible for Trump. Not really. Numerically, that doesn't quite hold up. So let's look at white women. Let's return to some of these convenient fictions we have about who didn't vote for Trump and, and look a little bit more closely. The enemy is us. Say, say, the enemy is us. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Eliza. Thank you so much, Rob. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU. 
and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Ben Branstein. You can find us at Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.